You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Those words are from the book of Job, who, as you know, endured his grief and his suffering, and he had good days of grief, and he had bad days of grief. And on one of his good days of grief, Job said in Job 13 of the Lord, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. He says in chapter 16, Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is, my, is on high, my intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. In chapter 19, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And at the end of this season of crippling grief that Job endured, he said, My ears had heard of you, O God, but now my eyes have seen you. Grief has a a way of teaching lessons. Grief has a way of confronting us and revealing the quality of our faith. C.S. Lewis, in his book called A Grief Observed, says that we often can put on God like a parachute, hoping that when we jump out of the plane until we land, you know, we really don't have to have that second parachute. The first one will be enough. We put on God like a parachute in the sense that we really don't want to use it. Most things that are important in life require time. Learning patience requires time. Learning wisdom requires time. The most deep lessons that you'll face in life require your whole life to learn because they're important lessons. Grief also requires time. You cannot hurry grief. It will not be passed by. You cannot ignore it. It will come back at you. Good grief takes time, but it accomplishes something deeper in our lives than we are fully able to comprehend in this body. This morning, as we resume our study of the life of David, we open up the pages of 2 Samuel, where we turned to, finished in in the spring in 1 Samuel, and we find him at a dark time, for he has just heard news that his best friend is dead. It's interesting how... The historians of the Bible in the Old Testament mark things with births and deaths. We are told to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because on those two polar extremes of human experience of of joy, intense joy and intense sorrow, birth and death seem seem to mark those times. Genesis ends with the death of Joseph and Exodus begins with the birth of Moses. And even as we look at the scripture that we're going to be looking at today, we see that David hears of the death of Saul and Jonathan, and he goes into a period of grief and mourning. He sings a lament. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1? And in the opening verses of this text, what we find is that the news arrives at Ziklag, where David and his men live in Philistine country. And they see a man coming across the valley, 
And as he gets closer, he looks rather war-torn. He's got torn clothes and dust on his head, and he's been weeping, and he arrives, and he's taken to King David, and David says, what do you bring news of? And he says, I've been on the front lines of Israel's battle, and they've lost the war. King Saul is dead, and his son Jonathan is at his side dead. I have brought you his crown. And David interrogates the man, finds out more of why he's, he's, uh, what, what has happened. We're going to look at this in a moment. But he goes into a period of mourning. And we're going to pick up the scripture in chapter 1, verse 17, where the lament begins that he instructs all of Israel to sing. Would you stand with me as I read David's lament for Saul and Jonathan? Chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, beginning in verse 17. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bull. It is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil." From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan in life were to loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. Weep for him who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. You'll notice in the insert in your bulletin that there's four things I'd like to say quickly about this text. First of all, there's grief's interruption. Secondly, grief's honor. Then grief's lament. And it's finally grief's invitation. It maybe doesn't need to be said that grief brings an interruption. In the Jewish culture, the interruption was pronounced with one week of fasting, of prayer, of tearing your clothes visibly as a sign of sorrow and of putting ashes or dust on your head. David and his men would have received or responded to this news in that fashion. And the, the whole grief began because it entered the camp when that man entered the camp. And there was no, nor, no more talk of going out to fight battles for grief had come into the camp, and it could not return to normalcy quickly. Uh, Is it possible for a grieving person to go quickly back to any kind of normalcy? Is it typical that it is typical that after the service and, and the cards and flowers and phone calls and house visits and meals and deliveries, when all of the dust settles in the home where grief has knocked at the door, 
and where silence and solitude begin to be guests. For some it is welcomed, for others it screams. And David and his men, in their grief, were not told how long, we can only speculate, but this was a huge interruption. Life could not be the same. Somehow grief defines people. David's response, like many people in grief, was wondering as his eyes adjusted to the dark, wondered if he'd ever have eyes that adjusted to the light again. That's what grief can feel like. He says how the mighty have fallen. Jonathan has, he's slain on the heights. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. Your love was more dear than the love of a woman. You know, David might be a pretty good example of a friend, but he was not a very good example of a husband. In fact, at this time, he has two wives, and I don't think it was ever God's will that David had two wives, and then he had Michael yet that had left him, and he's going to return. And then there was Bathsheba that's coming, another wife. David is not an example of a good husband, but he, he is an example of a good friend. It is odd that Jonathan is grieved more than any wife in David's life. Grief interrupts. Secondly, grief has got its honor. In, in, in this passage of Scripture, David does more than weep and fast. He actually does something. He takes action. And in this capacity, it's on behalf of Saul and Jonathan in order to preserve their honor and dignity. When the man who confesses of the news that he himself killed Saul at the end of his life, David is outraged for killing the Lord's anointed. The fact that he's an Amalekite only brings one more layer because you see at the beginning of Saul's kingly ministry, he was supposed to wipe out all the Amalekites and he didn't and so ends up that one kills him, which is an irony in the story. It's hard for us to understand David's actions here, but it was all about honor, honoring Saul and Jonathan and the Lord's anointing on them. And this Amalekite made the mistake of thinking that because David had to flee from Saul and was living in a far-off land, that he must have hated Saul and he will probably reward handsomely anyone who takes Saul out. Big mistake this Amalekite made, whether he made the story up about killing him finally or not. The fact is that David did not hate Saul. He had the opportunity twice to kill Saul and he didn't because he revered the Lord's anointed. In fact, this very indication takes us to another level of David's grief that we don't think of when we first lay eyes on the text. And that is that this man, Saul, that is being announced as dead to the ears of David, this man was the man that took David as a teenager out of his father's home where he was shepherding sheep and trained him in battle. This is the man that he fought beside, killing enemies of God's people. This is the man that reared him in his home and gave him his platform of service. This is the man that he wanted to reconcile with while he let yet lived in this body. And that news announced to David that he would not in this flesh have an opportunity opportunity to say, Saul, once again, is my friend. That's another level of grief. When someone dies that you've not had an opportunity to reconcile with, 
David's grief is deep. David honors also some men in chapter 2. We read of the men of Jabesh Gilead, the ones that took those bodies of Saul and Jonathan found beheaded and takes them back to Israel and, and gives them a decent burial. And David goes and he honors the men. And he, and he blesses them. You see, grief has a way of wanting desperately to honor those that honor the deceased loved one. Grief has a way of wanting to value those that have valued the ones that you've loved and missed. Nicholas Wolterstorff writes that grief is existential testimony to the worth of the loved one that abides. A woman by the name of Harriet Schiff in the book called The Bereaved Parent writes this, The reality is that we don't forget, we don't move on, we don't have closure, but we have honor. We remember memories of your loved ones alive in our minds and hearts in an important way as part of the healing journey. In grief, people do many things to honor. We know of funds and bursaries and homes and gardens and things that are all memorial in nature. I think of Earl Cook. I think of Anna Marcus Green. I think of the ways that God, God's people want to remember those that are markers in their lives, the defining them who they are in some capacity moving forward. And that leads to grief's lament as we read it in chapter 1 verse 17. Someone said that every lament really is a love song, isn't it? Every lament is a love song. And in this lament, three times that mighty phrase is used, how the mighty have fallen. Five times the word mighty is used of Jonathan and Saul. David could have done anything but give good words. He, he, could, have, he could have given bad words. He could have said nothing. For Saul was a thorn in David's side until Saul died. But instead, he goes into eulogy to speak well of. And David utters good words, and he unites Jonathan and Saul as loved and gracious men, mighty and valiant in Israel's army. Finally, I want to invite you to think of grief's invitation. For there's a turning point in this passage that comes in chapter 2, verse 1. And the turning point is that it says, David inquired of the Lord. In the NIV, it says, in the course of time. You know, literally, what, what's that old phrase is used here? And it came to pass. It came to pass. Something incredibly good about grief is that it comes to pass. At least the intensity of grief comes to pass. Early grief, no, but late grief starts to give you an invitation to the future. It says that it came to pass in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. When, when the, the, the fog and the cloud and the darkness lift and, and the, the sunshine can, can, can be seen again, people inquire of the Lord that are walking through grief. And it, it's an interesting passage of Scripture that there's a transition here. We don't know how long it took. But at some point, David came to pass, and David inquired of the Lord, and he was able to take next steps. Someone among us who has looked through tears for over a year in her grief and is able to share with us this morning is Lorraine Demonier. And I've asked Lorraine to come and share a little bit 
of the turning points in her life and the journey that she's had in the last more than a year. God bless you, Lorraine, as you share. Good morning. 15 months ago, my world turned upside down. On June 15, 2014, my husband Bill died suddenly as a result of a brain aneurysm. That day, I joined a club that I did not think I would be part of at 50 years old. After 31 years of marriage, I became a widow. We honored Bill's life with a celebration. Almost 1,000 people came to show their love and support. We gave praise and thanks to God for the man Bill was and remembered him in ways that still make me smile today. Since Bill's death, I've been on a journey called grief. Grief is messy, it's unpredictable, it makes no sense, it sucks. I've cried many tears, mourned deeply, and felt tremendous loss. The best way I can describe grief is like waves in the ocean. There were days when the waves hit me and I felt like I was drowning. Sometimes I would feel wiped out but still able to keep my head above the water. There were other days that the waves made the sand just ripple under my feet. These days I feel like I'm on more solid ground, but I know that when I least expect it, the powerful waves of grief will wipe me out again. I learned quickly that grief was hard work and I couldn't do it alone. I realized that I needed to hold my family close and allow people to walk with me and to help me. For my own sake and for the ones who stood beside me but didn't know what to do, what to say, or how to respond to a woman in my situation, but wanted to be the hands and feet of Jesus to me. I know that people have prayed for me and my family. If you know me well, then you will know that I'm intentional in how I live. I've learned I had to be intentional on how I grieved too. I read as many Christian books as possible on grief and life as a widow. I examined my life to understand who I am as a single woman who had not been single in her adult life. I had many questions. Who is Lorraine without Bill? Did I like myself? Would I survive being alone? I spent many hours alone in my thoughts, journaling my thoughts and praying that, uh, that with God's strength, I would survive. I quickly realized I had two choices. I could be the grieving widow or I could choose to live and being a living testimony of God's faithfulness and love. I sought the support of a Christian counselor and I researched support groups. I learned about a program called Grief Share. I explored the program and found that it was offered in a few churches in Winnipeg. It seemed solid in its biblical teachings and didn't put grief into neat stages, but instead described grief as a journey. In January, my daughter and I walked into our first grief share session, unsure what to expect. We met a beautiful couple, our group leaders, who had lost their daughter to a drunk driver 11 years ago. My emotions were raw and I was still hurting. I quickly learned that I was in a safe place. We made the commitment to a 13-week program. Our leaders led our group with love and compassion. We were never judged by our tears 
or our responses to the probing questions. We were welcomed and introduced to a program that helped us understand grief and that there is hope in a difficult time and that mourning can turn to joy. Grief Share pointed us to Christ as a source of our strength, hope, and joy. Grief Share taught us that we still need to live, to trust God, and to serve others. Grief Share helped me sort out my thoughts and my fears so that they made sense. Grief Share helped me, un helped me even though I don't fully understand, to trust and not question why God called Bill home on Father's Day. I know with all my heart that Bill met his heavenly father that day. I would, be rather, I would rather be sharing life with Bill than doing life alone. I don't like being single in a couple's world. I've established boundaries to protect myself. For a time, I feared coming home. Being at home made me feel sad, and, I, and when I was home, I had to face reality. But now I find comfort, peace, and precious memories in my home. I wondered if I would ever feel whole again. In time, I realized that Lorraine was coming back. I wondered if I would ever feel joy. In time, I started to feel this sense of joy bursting from me. God gave me a beautiful image of the joy I was feeling. It was, as a, it was as if a lid had been lifted off of me and sparkles and sequins and ribbons were popping out of my head. I wondered what my future would look like. In time, God allowed me to anticipate the future, to actually feel excited about what's to come, and to be confident in knowing that God holds my future in his hands. I know I can trust God with my future because as hard as Bill's death has been, I have seen beauty and miracles, and I find blessings in each day. I've learned that God makes all things beautiful in his time. God shows me through many gifts of memory that I will survive this journey of grief. God has taught me that I can't do it alone. I need my, to be in community with my friends, with my family, and with you, my church family. I've grown in my walk with God. I've prayed and I've learned to be still. I've learned to keep my eyes on eternity. I now see eternity with new eyes. I've learned that I can live and feel joy even in the midst of grief by focusing on and depending fully on Christ. I've learned that God is bigger than all my pain, my sorrow, and that he's faithful and he's in control and that he loves me with an unfailing love. I know that God is good all the time. All the time, God is good, even in grief. Thank you. Lorraine, thank you so much for having the courage to share when we asked you to. There's a couple of ways we could respond. One way that I would encourage some of you to respond is to, in the Connecting Points brochure, respond by signing up to Grief Share, the program that Lorraine and others will be in this, this fall, starting in October. Uh, an incredible opportunity to walk through and understand more of what God's teaching you through this time. Others of you that are maybe not in intense grief will be able to respond by walking alongside of and thinking of others. I found this quote 
by Anita Renfro. It said the problem for those of us who witness the suffering of grief in others is that we have no knowledge of where they are in the hole or how to direct them to the exit. Everyone's journey back into the land of the living is unique and nothing we can say will change their new reality. But we can offer love and presence and assurance that we will be there whenever they are able to come out. So it could be that God put on your mind somebody that you know is still walking through grief and God wants you to be a living presence in their lives when they're able to come out. The Bible says that, brothers, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, that Jesus Christ died and was risen, and that we also know that everyone who has fallen asleep, died in Christ, is going to be raised again. And so that is our hope, that is our focus. We've been talking about David, but the one who is called the son of David, Jesus, is the one who is present in our lives day by day, moment by moment, to offer us the mercy that he alone can give. Like the blind man in Jericho that sat on the side of the road and as the whole crowd was passing by, he cried out in a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I would ask you as we conclude, as we continue in worship, that uh, as we respond with a song or two, that you would have that on your heart. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's uh, call the worship team and let's respond to what we've heard today. May God bless you.